Uh, my wife uh, had an interesting time putting together the children's bulletin. Um, she's got a practice of choosing a verse to have you fill in the blanks, uh, which was extra tricky, as was selecting appropriate pictures. Um, as we consider our children joining us this morning, it appears that the Corinthians were much more comfortable discussing this stuff than we are today. It's one of the few issues that they as a congregation wrote to Paul to ask for help on. And when Paul answered, we don't find him telling them to stop talking about it, asking the kids to step out for a little while, or concealing the subject matter in apparently any way. And so I'm not planning to either, but beyond that, this passage is uh, what I would describe as unfortunately familiar. You see, it's both extraordinarily practical, many have gone to this passage before, and it's frequently misunderstood, misapplied, and abused. In fact, the chances that it has come up at least once, and likely poorly, in just about every marriage in here are very high. And so, brace yourself. Um, no, not really. But in all seriousness, I know that there are anxieties out there, and me too, believe me, this is a passage as I looked forward to 1 Corinthians, uh, I thought about this one and one other passage, I was like, am I sure I really want to get into 1 Corinthians? And so that, that's real, and, um, and at the same time, we live in a seriously sex-crazed, confused culture, and that sex craze and confusion is not, is not immune from the church and Christian marriages. And Paul is here giving sexually wounded and struggling people good news and hope. And so I just pray that uh, that would come through, and I pray that uh, the Lord would enable us to set our fears aside and listen closely and afresh to what our God has to say to us on this subject. And so... Let's look at that now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 through 9. I'm going to start at chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationship, relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. 
the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Dear Almighty God, Lord, we do come this morning with some different um, presuppositions about this passage. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help mightily in the preaching and explanation of this passage. Protect my mouth, Lord, from error, and I pray, Lord, that you would guard your people here from errant interpretations. Would you use this, your word, Lord, for the building up of your church, for bringing clarification and healing and good news? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so, perhaps you can see a little bit about why this has generated some angst. It's because we're really concerned about sex, and we're really concerned about what the Bible might say about sex. No matter where this topic goes, it's inherently, deeply personal, and it was for the Corinthians as well. After all, sex is not a new concern in human history. We can go back to the most ancient artifacts and very oftentimes, they are sexually oriented. But it was also a bit more for the Corinthians. All of them are first-generation Christians, and most of them were coming out of a culture that was immersed in sexual immorality. And then comes Paul and Christianity. The one who brought them to Christ was a single and celibate man, which was like a whole brand new category for most of them. And then he was telling them that sexual immorality was both off-limits and sin. Can you imagine the questions that would have been raised? Is sex now bad? Is marriage wrong? What do I do with these desires? Are they dirty or are they evil? In short, the Corinthians are wrestling with trying to understand how their newfound faith deals with their long-held sexual customs and very real sexual desires. Well, here we have Paul's answer to their questions. He's teaching them about what a Christian is supposed to do with their sexuality. And so first, he explains the gift of biblical singleness. Second, the gift of biblical marriage. And third, how we are supposed to reconcile this with real life. So let's look at these in turn. Point one, the gift of biblical singleness. Verse 1 through 2, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships, relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Similarly, in verse 6, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, meaning single, but each has his own gift. And again, similarly in verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. And so in triplicate in this passage, Paul affirms that there are two options for dealing with our sexuality. One, singleness and the celibacy, and two, marriage and thus sexual relations with our spouse. And at the same time, that they are not equal. We're not supposed to just roll the dice on this, but there's actually a preference here for singleness. 
In verse 6, Paul calls it a gift that he wishes we all had. And that means that while there are two options, singleness should be our default or our starting point. If you can remain single, as he says, then you should. In other words, it's the better of the two. And so, why? Well, as Paul explains in verse 32 through 34, a little bit further on in this chapter, it's because the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the, un, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. In other words, since singleness doesn't carry the added burden of caring for a spouse, it enables a more singular devotion to the Lord. And so, my question for you is, is that how you tend to think about singleness? And I suspect the answer is no. The church has a reputation for so romanticizing marriage that it tends to overlook or belittle singleness. And in response, many singles, they either retreat from the church or they marginalize themselves or they, they get married so that they can move into that uh, approved status in the church. But all of that is backwards. Singleness isn't a sad curse that we need to get rid of or hide, but a gift from God that enables more. It means that married folks shouldn't be focused on fixing our single brothers and sisters, but supporting them. And conversely, singles shouldn't be focused on hiding or getting out of their singleness, but embracing it and striving to make the very best of it. And yet at the same time, this teaching raises an important question. If singleness is preferred, then why would anyone get married? Point to the gift of biblical marriage. In verse 6, Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And in verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so how do we decide? For as crude as it may sound, what Paul tells us is that we look at our sex drive. If God has given you the gift of a more manageable sex drive and a peaceable contentment apart from sexual relations, then you should remain single. And if he hasn't, then you have that gift of another kind and you should marry. It's that simple right? And yet, is it really? We might ask, is there nothing else to consider before getting married than sex? Compatibility, companionship, anything? Well, of course there is, and there are other passages, some of which Paul himself writes, that make that abundantly clear, and so he isn't meaning to exclude those other things here, but to make a point about sex, He's trying to tell us that sex, and particularly that passion for sexual gratification that he describes here, is such a big deal, such a big deal that it's a sufficient ground for getting married. And so is that how you think about it? Or is that how you think about what you're doing in marriage? Again, I'm not sure a whole lot of us do, or at least we'd be embarrassed to say so, right? In fact, I bet most of us would, would not have thought to answer this question like Paul does. If someone's experiencing problems with sexual temptation, i.e. they they have trouble with self-control, or they're burning with passion, 
I think we're far more apt to say, get a grip man or get a grip girl. You need to get control of yourself or a lack of sex is not going to kill you. Am I right? And there's genuine truth and rightness in that counsel. But Paul, the single celibate guy, remember, still gives this passionate drive for sexual gratification so much weight that he recommends getting married, and in fact, he commands getting married. Verse 12 says, they should imperative marry. And that should tell us something about our sex drive. It means it's both uh, much more important and powerful than we tend to give it credit for. And therefore, what does that mean for how we handle the gift of marriage? Paul answers that in verses 2 through 5, and we can see four things. First, sexual relations in marriage are for pleasure. The vocabulary here gives little doubt that he has this in mind. Despite the number of references to sex, and you could count many, sexual relations, verse 1, have his own wife, verse 2, conjugal rights, verse 3, etc., there is not a single mention of children, but instead a motive he calls, verse 9, burning with passion. In other words, for Paul, sex and marriage isn't simply the narrow, for the narrow purpose of procreation, but the broad purpose of pleasure and passion. And there's no indication here that Paul finds that in any way wrong, dirty, or unclean. And perhaps that just makes sense to you, but, but it would have been a shocker, an absolute shocker to the Corinthians. One commentator has called this a surprising contrast to the predominant political, philosophical, and medical focus of the time, which used sex and marriage almost exclusively to generate legitimate children and sexual immorality outside of marriage activities for pleasure. In effect, he continues, Paul is redefining marriage as a context primarily for the mutual satisfying of erotic desires in contrast to the pagan philosophical idea that the primary purpose of marriage was the procreation of legitimate heirs. And so why such a significant shift? Well, because sex and marriage is for our protection. As Paul puts it in verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In other words, one of the most basic reasons for sex and marriage is to protect one another from the temptation to sexual immorality. It's again, perhaps, not how we tend to think about it, but I think that's because many of us just don't understand how pervasive and tempting and damaging sexual immorality is. And so, I'm going to spend a little bit of extra time here. Did you know that of the 10 leading search engines, the 10 leading search engines, the number one search, search term on all of them is sex? Did you know that the average most age, most children are first exposed to pornography is 10 years old? Have you had that conversation with your children yet? Did you know that according to a survey conducted in 2014, 79% of men, 79% of men, almost 80%, 8 in 10 men, and 76% of women age 18 to 30 view pornography at least once a month. 
And did you know that those numbers are only marginally, almost insignificantly improved for self-identified Christians? You see, the temptation to sexual immorality isn't just a problem out there, but it's very much in here. We are swimming and falling and drowning in it, just like they are, and it doesn't help to pretend otherwise. The thing we need to realize, and it's something that Paul gets here, is that this temptation isn't a light affair, but it's a very real, powerful, and devastating enemy. It's like crack cocaine, one, one hit and you're hooked, but it's even more, even more addictive and damaging. That's also why sex and marriage is such a gift to Paul. You see, it's one of the, the God-given places that we're supposed to flee to. It's not an invincible refuge, don't get me wrong. Even fully satisfied sinners still struggle with lust and temptation, and we are each responsible for our own sins. But sex and marriage, according to Paul, it helps. It's like a wonderful, powerful antidote to the temptation to sexual immorality. And so then how does that affect how we handle sexual relations in marriage? Paul says, verse 3 through 4, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Well, this is the section, if there is one, that has generated the most confusion. It pairs unquestionably strong and authoritarian language with something unquestionably personal private and sensitive. It's so strong that it sounds like each spouse has to ask permission from their spouse to do something with their own body. And at the same time, their spouse has the right to order them to do something with their body. It's strong. It's authoritarian, ownership, entitlement kinds of language. And there's actually basis for that in the text. Paul is, in fact, obligating or requiring each spouse to serve the other sexually. And yet, at the same time, we don't find Paul at all endorsing either an oppressive or totalitarian-style dictatorship or an utterly freestyle approach to sex. He doesn't call us to stake our claim, as Piper puts it, or, or free us to make them do whatever we want. There's no indication of violence or abuse or some free license for sexual immorality here, but instead a culture of consent that is expressed in biblically shaped giving. See, the key word here in verse 3 is give. And that word has an overshadowing influence on how we apply the rest of the language. It's also a powerful indication that there's something else going on here. You see, the reason Paul's ownership concept doesn't sound like the world's, i.e. tyranny, is because it's patterned after something else. The parallel with verse 19 of the prior passage is hard to miss. There, Paul told us that our bodies belong to Christ. Well, in a similar but not identical way, he's telling us that in marriage our bodies belong to our spouse. And consequently, we're, to, we're supposed to give ourselves to them, our spouse, like we would him, Christ, voluntarily, gladly, proactively, and biblically. That's the vision for how we're supposed to relate to one another around sex. It's like an application of Romans 12.10. There Paul says, we're supposed to strive to outdo one another in giving to or serving, honoring one another. 
And so to that end, Paul says, verse 5, do not deprive one another. In other words, don't hold back. Don't, don't restrain yourself in your giving to one another. And yet as he continues, there might be times to do so. Verse 5 continues, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, the only reason that you might do so, that you might abstain, note the non-essential qualifier here perhaps, is for prayer. But even, even then, only by mutual consent and for a limited time, and then that's it. Paul doesn't give any other reasons to abstain, and then he frames it on both sides with do not deprive one another, imperative, and come together again, imperative. And so what's that mean? Some flags go up, right? Are there no other reasons to abstain? Well, no. Paul's Paul's not trying to give us an exhaustive, comprehensive list of legitimate exceptions that we can go ahead and sort of check the box next to. There have always been sexual respites throughout history for significant illness, for parts of pregnancy and afterwards, menstruation, business trips and military service, and other things. And I only want to state that explicitly because it unfortunately needs to be stated explicitly. And that stuff is still normal. The singularity of Paul's exception isn't meant to exclude these things, but to focus our attention on the main thing. Abstinence is dangerous. We shouldn't, we shouldn't take it lightly. It removes the protection that sexual relations provides and makes us more vulnerable, as he states here, to the devil's temptations. And so while it's allowed, we should practice it sparingly, with mutual consent and with a definite timetable. And now point three. What do we do with all of this? That's the crunch, isn't it? For some, it's perfectly clear, and for others, it's impossible or at least extraordinarily complicated. Perhaps the whatabouts have been ringing in your ears for a long time now. Things like, I'm single, but I've got a terrible self-control problem. I wanted to get married my entire life, but I haven't found the right person. Or, I'm married, but I have the gift for singleness. What do I do? Or, my spouse and I are, are sexually mismatched so far that every move I make seems repulsive to them, and every response that they give seems like shame to me. Or I have this super hyperactive sex drive, but it's for the wrong gender. Or my sexuality has been so warped by sexual immorality that I have zero desire for my spouse. Or my spouse can't get past how I look at them through my eyes like an object. Or the lingering trauma from past abuses has so scarred my heart that I literally shake at the thought of moving toward my spouse sexually. And these whatabouts could keep on going on and on and on, and they are to the depth of our heart absolutely real. And so can this get complicated? It it can absolutely get complicated, and we have to be sensitive to that. The abuses and the obstacles and distortions that come from sex can be amongst the deepest and most enduring that we can experience our entire lives. And yet there's still hope here. I don't know exactly where you are right now, but there's a way to move from wherever we are, 
with all our baggage, with all our circumstances to what Paul is calling us to. And it comes as we understand and embrace where he is getting this from. You see, Paul's direction isn't just teaching us about what we're supposed to do in the abstract, but what we're supposed to do in light of Christ. This isn't a new law, but how the gospel recovers and transforms our sexuality. And so to that end, just think about how Paul's direction expresses how Christ relates to his bride in the gospel. In the gospel, despite our past rebellion and continued stumbling, Christ pursues us, he redeems us, and he lifts us back up. Despite our distance and sometimes coldness, aloofness, he comes to us in grace, gently, patiently, warmly, and personally. Despite our weakness, he protects, nurtures, and cherishes us. And so the gospel doesn't show us a tyrannical dictator kind of Lord, but a self-sacrificing Savior. And why? Well, because, because he loves us. As John 3.16 puts it, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And similarly, Romans 5.8, But God showed us his love for us, and that we will write, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John 5, 10, the Apostle, Paul said, the Apostle says, and this is love, not that we have at first or first loved God, and he's thereby reciprocating that, but, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so God's radical, self-sacrificing, other-serving activity that we find in the gospel, even towards sinners who sinned against him, is not a reactive, reciprocal gesture based on something that we've done, but a product of his unilateral love for us. It's a love that we ought to reciprocate, that we ought to strive to replicate, but that he started, he carries, and for which he has promised to never, ever waver, even if and when we most certainly do. And that, Christ's gospel-shaped love for his bride, is what informs Paul's direction here. And so what do we take away from this? Well, healing and hope for our sexual struggles comes from turning and looking to Christ. It's because it's Christ's love for his bride that shows us how to love ours. And it's because it's Christ's overflowing love for us and our love for him that enables us to show that kind of love to another. And for that reason, let me submit to you as gently as possible in knowing that it isn't always so simple that many of our struggles with our sexuality are often in a large part a result of our keeping them away from Christ. In short, the reason we're struggling so much is because we're not turning to and looking to Christ, but to ourselves and only ourselves. Sex isn't first and foremost about Christ or them, but it's about us. And that's exactly backwards. It won't work, not with our sin, not with our salvation, not with this. We just don't have it in us to desire the right things, nor the resources to do those right things. It's why Paul, of all the possibilities to, to, to stop sex for a minute, says break for prayer. It's to get our bearings straight again. It's not because sex with our spouse isn't somehow spiritual, but because it is exactly spiritual. 
It's because the only way we can move forward with our spouse for our spouse is by moving forward with the Lord for the Lord. You see, what needs to dawn on us in this stuff is that sex with our spouse isn't just a nicety under just the right circumstances if we're feeling up to it, but a ministry, a ministry of ourselves on behalf of Christ for another sinner. And so where are you today? Whether you're single or married, where is your heart with what Paul is describing here? Do you have room to grow? Are you willing to grow? Or is this an off-limits category? Have you looked to and taken it to the Lord? If your answer there is no, then I just want to encourage you strongly to take it to the Lord. And alongside of that, talk to someone. The Corinthians did. Sex is sometimes so taboo in Christian culture that even spouses, after they've been married a long, long time, are not willing, uncomfortable talking to one another about this. But that's not a biblical taboo. And therefore, seek the Lord's direction directly and indirectly. If you're single, ask a friend if they think you have a gift for singleness or not, and then what that means. If you're married, ask one another about how you're doing. Confess your struggles. Discuss how you might be able to grow. And then turn back again and again and again and again to the Lord. Because it's only by looking to Him and abiding in Him that we can grow in loving another sinner for His glory. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, this is a very, very sensitive subject. You know how much. And so, Lord, I just pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit in bringing clarity to this. I pray, Lord, that whether we have been humbled or corrected or encouraged, I pray, Lord, that in all those things we would find ourselves increasingly turning to and looking to Christ And then, Lord, in our so doing, that you would give us strength and wisdom and vision to follow you, to do good to one another for your glory, to take this expression in singleness or marriage as an opportunity to glorify God in our bodies. Please do that work, Lord. Show us your mercy in this, we pray. And please give us your help. In Jesus' name, amen.